you know, you, you're going to get the call one day. And are you going to be ready for the call? And how are you going to handle that call? Um, it was a Thursday night. Took the kids uh, to a Broadway show. They wanted to go see uh, The Lion King. And we're staying in the city. And I get the phone call 3, 4 in the morning from the arson explosive, arson explosive supervisor, who wasn't even my supervisor at the time. And so him and I had, had been friends, and we knew each other. And I kind of thought it was weird that he was calling me. Um, and I pick up, and you could just tell by his tone of his voice, hey, where are you? I'm in New York. How quickly can you get up here? I'm like, um, a couple hours, why? I need you up here. We just had a huge fire down in Rhode Island, a lot of fatalities. And we're heading down there this morning. Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And just a quick thank you to those who've signed up to support this podcast on Patreon. I kicked that off just a couple of weeks ago in a special uh, episode that talked about that and the expanded content that's available to patrons. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast and getting some of those behind the scenes content, uh, visit patreon.com backslash Firehouse Logbook Podcast. Today, this episode is the second dedicated to a specific historic fire that's impacted our fire service business. This incident happened 19 years ago on February 20th, 2003, and was one of the incidents that got me into working on the development and adoption of building codes and standards. It was at at a club in West Warwick, Rhode Island. The band White Snake was scheduled to perform a show. And at that venue, there was a local television crew filming a news story that captured the incident that started the fire and ultimately killed 100 people and injured 230. One of the investigators who responded to that scene is here with me today to discuss that fire and the aftermath. Please welcome ATF Special Agent John Pajaka, who is uh, now retired from the ATF. John, thanks for, uh, thanks for being with me, and I uh, appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's, uh, let's start a little bit about your background. If, if I remember when we talked before, you had started off in the fire service. Is that correct? Yeah, so I was um, – actually, I started in, in, on the police side, really. Um, I was, a, say, a detective with the Kings County District Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, New York. And um, I lived on Long Island, which was pretty much all volunteer firefighters. So uh, me and a couple of buddies joined the local fire department out there. And, you know, you come to learn that – most volunteer firefighters on Long Island were all New York City cops and New York City firefighters. Um, so it was a great camaraderie to have. Um, but it was one of those things where, you know, you, you worked a police job and then you went home and you responded to fire. So you kind of got the best of both worlds on that. Um, and then I got kind of lucky. I, I was working youth crime guns and ATF was looking for some task force members. What they wanted to do was... Um, interview all kids that were locked up with guns to see if we can start figuring out where these guns come from. So of course, nobody wanted to volunteer for it. So they, uh, I, I win the lottery on that one and got selected to go onto the ATF task force. Volatold. Right. right. So, uh, but, but in hindsight, it was the best thing that, uh, that ever happened. So I got to kind of go on the ATF task force working the gun stuff, but then I kind of knew about the fire stuff that they were doing. And I'm like, well, this is pretty cool. I mean, I do the fire, uh, firefighting stuff. And I thought it was pretty cool. Like when, when I, as a probie firefighter, uh, I'd have to stay back and wait for the fire marshal to get there. And I'm like, well, if I'm here anyway, I might as well kind of follow along and see what he's doing. And I'm like, man, this is really like interesting to figure all this stuff out. And um, the fire marshal out at the time that responded to that, to one of my first fires, um, was a, was a really good investigator. He taught at the fire Academy. He was on the IAAI board. So it, 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 it was kind of, he kind of almost taught me fire investigations without really even teaching me it. You know, it was, I was just kind of tagging along and I'm asking questions. He kind of liked that. So he answered everything I wanted. Uh, I got offered a job by ATF and I was like, this is great. Uh, they sent me up to Boston and knowing that they had a firefighter, a certified fire investigator program, uh, I got to join it. And I was very lucky. Again, you, you talk about just being at the right place at the right time. 
Um, I wind up working alongside Wayne Miller, who uh, was a retired ATF agent, is now is on his second book. Um, he, he wrote Burn, Boston Burn um, as his first book. And, and ironically, towards the end of my career, I wound up working a case that involved one of his suspects in his early case um, that he has in his book. And then he just wrote uh, Bang Boom Burn. So uh, he, he was well known within ATF. And I'm like, this is going to be great. Um, I'm going to get to tag along with Wayne on stuff. And then, of course, Wayne retires. Um, but but I did um, gun work early in my career. Again, got lucky. Nobody wanted to go over to the Joint Terrorism Task Force after 9-11. Um, I got sent over to the Joint Terrorism Task Force. They put me on their hazmat team, so I got to go through the whole hazmat course. Um, and I was the liaison between ATF and the FBI for a while. And um, that that showed its fruits, even though I had left that at like 2007, right? 2006, 2007, when I got into the ATF certified fire investigator program, um, the Boston Marathon bombing happens. And I respond to that. And I, being that I still had a lot of the contacts that I had there, even though there was somebody else there, um, we, we were able to work the scene jointly pretty, pretty good. Um, you know, everybody says that there's sometimes fighting within agencies and there, and there is, um, but, but there are times where if you make the right connections and the right personalities mix, you wind up working well together. So, so that worked out well for me. Um, in my career, but I got into the ATF certified fire investigator program in 2007, graduated it in 2009, two year program they go through and then just did fires for the rest of my career. Wow. Well, it's interesting. You, you mentioned uh, Wayne Miller. He's been on this podcast. We talked, I talked with him a couple of weeks ago about that, uh, his book, burn Boston burn and that whole, that whole dynamic with the, what they were doing, those, those criminals were doing. Yeah being quote really domestic terrorists back in the early eighties, it was a pretty interesting story to hear from I read the book and then hear some of the, some of the more background stories coming from Wayne. That was pretty interesting too. So uh, he's, he's got a pretty interesting career himself. He, he really does. And you know, I, I can always say he's one of many that I've worked with that I can say I've had the pleasure to work with. And you look at where they are now and you're like, man, I really feel like a nobody compared to these guys. You know, Steve Carmen out in California, he just does some great, great work. He was a great ATF agent. Mike Marcotte did some great work. They did a lot of stuff on um, ventilation fires early on. They were they, they really started it. Andy Cox picked up the ball with ATF and, and did um, matrix analysis on compartment fires and, and how um, certain fire patterns and how they're caused and how oxygen really plays a role and ventilation plays a role. And sometimes your area of most burn isn't really where your fire starts, depending on ventilation. So these guys were pioneers in the field. So like every time I went to ATF CFI recertification and you're amongst these men and women, and you just sit there and go, well, I'm really a nobody compared to some of these guys because you hold them in such high regard. Um, we've had ATF agents that retired that were, you know, rose the ranks through ATF and retired as assistant special agent in charge. And now they're kind of out doing their own thing. And you look at them and you're like, man, these guys really pioneered um, an era for fire investigations. Yeah. And I always enjoyed going to uh, the IWI international conference. Cause that's where those, I remember a couple of those names there and, and others who kind of come yeah. down and try to share that, that knowledge and experience with uh, those of us who were less experienced and tried to soak up some of that knowledge for sure. And, and I always say, you know what, we're, we're just very fortunate in ATF as a federal agency. You know, local fire investigators are some of the greatest fire investigators, but you can only work the fires that happen in your community or that area that you cover. Um, we get exposed to everything because especially on our national response team, we're going all over the country and so we're seeing all different kinds of fire. You may never in your career work a dust fire, you know, that, that explodes. But, but ATF can because we get called out to those. You'll never, you may never work a $10 million building under construction fire because you just don't have that in your community. Whereas we get called out to those kind of fires. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that for a second, just because uh, I, I 
I had a couple of incidents. I worked some with um, a couple of the ATF guys here around Richmond, and uh, a lot of people may not know what that national response team is or, or how it works. And we, you know, here we are in early February, and we've had a couple of pretty big fires: Philly, New York, uh, a couple of construction fires over the last couple of weeks, where yeah. you see in the media, oh, the ATF is has come in to help with this investigation. How does that work? And how does, how does, how does that national response team integrate with the local or state agencies that are there on the ground? I'll tell you this. The greatest thing that ATF ever did was forming the national response team. Um, so we're made up, we have a great ATF lab and we have electrical engineers, fire protection engineers, um, chemists, and we, we incorporate those and we take all our special agents. You, volunteer basically you sign up you join the national response team um, and as part of it you, you respond to any large fire um, that a local community will request so you're like in your community or even out here in mass we have a huge fire um, I, I would respond to it as a local as, as just an atf cfi and i would offer up the services to that community to those investigators whether it be state police fire marshal's office Whoever it may be going, hey, guys, if you want, we can bring in this meets the standards of a national response call, which is any commercial fire, excess of one million dollar loss, but pretty much anything that a community says, hey, this is a large fire and we can really use extra resources um, so that we would then call our headquarters, put out the criteria of what we've met. As soon as they agree, it becomes a national response call out. The team is divided in three. So we have a East, Central, and a West team. And this is not – you're not really coming in and taking over the scene. You're oh, getting oh, out of here locals. It's, it's, absolutely it's, this, not. this really is a team building. You know, everybody's got a role and everybody plays a role kind of thing. And I think sometimes – so if a community has never had a national response call out, um, it's, it's a little tough in the beginning because that's part – part of the problem that we have to deal with initially right off the bat is – we're not coming in to take anything over. And, and sometimes the local boots on the ground don't know that um, until they really worked with us. So this is more of once we get there, our team leader will sit and meet with local team leaders and say, okay, how many people can you give us to supplement us? We're here. We have 20 people. We're going to have an interview coordination team. So do you have investigators that can hook up with our people and be part of an investigative leads team so we're going to follow if there's interviews that need to be done the leads teams are going to go out and who i mean why send two atf agents out to do an interview if they both came in from california and don't know richmond virginia mm -hmm. so it, it makes more sense to say okay let's get a local investigator and hook him up with an atf agent let them go out as a team for the next four or five six days however we're here or until all leads are followed up and do that part of it then we'll have the team the boots on the ground team that's going to do the field work that's going to dig out that scene. And we'll do that together. And we start off the mornings with a morning brief where everybody's there. Everybody gets the same information before they head out. If need be at any point, we stop, another briefing happens. But it's typically the beginning of the day, the end of the day. Our team leader is in constant communication with the local team leader. Boots on the ground are doing their job, whether it be we need heavy equipment, we need skid steer. What is it that we need to get this job done? How are we going to do this in the best and most efficient manner? We'll determine who's going to write the origin and cause on that. Most of the times it'll be ATF. And what we'll do is when we leave that scene, we're not leaving. And especially even at the end of the day briefings, we don't finish that briefing until everybody's there and everybody's on the same page of, we all have the same information before we go into the tomorrow. That next morning, it's pretty much a recap unless something came in overnight. We go out. Once we've determined what the fire scene is, we're going to start writing our origin and cause, our photographs, all our interviews, all goes into this big, huge book. Because once we leave, it's still a local case. Even if an ATF agent is assigned to it, everybody's going to get a copy of everything, whether it's all the photos, all the diagrams, if we matterported the building, whatever drawings were done, will be part of it. All the investigative leads, it'll all be in one giant book as a case folder book to hand over to the locals. And, and we never sit there and say, 
This is a federal case. This is a state case. We always look at things as who's got the biggest bang for their buck. If, if a state prosecution can get a better sentence, if it leads to a criminal case, well, then that's where it's going to go. If it's an accidental fire, how are we classifying it? And what's the best way to put that out to the media? That that's the way that started this fire. I mean, and, and a great example is the recent Philadelphia fire. Um, pretty quickly, that came out that it was a kid playing with a lighter that set the tree on fire. Um, and, and that was leaked to the media pretty early on. But yet we were still there for six days documenting that scene. Just to make sure that we did everything that we would normally do at a scene and not put anything out until we were 1000% sure that this is exactly what happened to the best that we can figure out. Yeah. And that, that, that piece of it of, um, you know, you're not, you're working through the process, the investigative process, that scientific process that's outlined, right? Ste- you know, whether, you know, okay, little Johnny set the Christmas tree on fire, check the box. We're out of here. We're done. You don't do that. You walk, walk through the whole process. Super nuts. Correct. And, and you'll get guys going, going, well, if the kid already admitted, why is ATF still on scene? Yeah. Because you got to follow the process to make sure. Absolutely. And then the process doesn't change just because somebody tells you that. Right. Well, let's uh, let, yeah, the ATF is, um, you know, I got, I only got to work with them a, a handful of times, uh, but they were immensely helpful in a couple of cases that uh, we worked in back when I was working fire scenes. And, um, you know, you're right. I think some of, some of the administrations locally will say, oh, we don't want the feds in here. That makes it look even worse. Right. Well, it, they bring tools to the game that we as locals and even some of the state uh, folks we had at the scene in one fire I'm, I'm remembering here, we didn't bring to the table. And the, the couple of ATF agents that were there really were, they showed up and said, hey, how can we help? Well, we don't know. And halfway through the morning, you know, a question came up and they went, hey, we can we, we can get that answer for you really quick. And in an hour, we had the answer because they had that intelligence resource that could bring to the table. And it was, oh, OK, well, this is this is nice. So a, a huge asset, I think, to uh, to local investigators. And a lot of times, you know, we as as, lo- as as all investigators and firefighters and police, we don't realize that we all bring different resources to the table. That, that sometimes one can't bring, you know, and like, just like sometimes we may say, hey, we can get that answer in an hour. There are times where a local may tell us, hey, listen, we can get that, but we got to go through the U.S. Attorney's Office. We got to do this. Oh, we can get that in 15 minutes. Right. Well, okay. Yeah, that's the way that's that was that scenario I'm talking about. Right. Why reinvent the wheel? If you can get it and we're working together, you get that piece of the puzzle and let me get my piece of the puzzle. Let's uh, let's delve into this one fire uh, in spe- specifically, and uh, thanks again to Bill for hooking you and I up and uh, putting us together to kind of share this story. Um, th- this was uh, this was kind of an interesting one from a couple of perspectives. One is that um, it, there was an incident that happened just a couple of days before this in Chicago that killed twenty one people because of a stampede out of a bar uh, that didn't have anything to do with a fire per se. I think it was a um, capstone or, or um, mm-hmm. mace that got released in the bar and everybody basically um, stampeded out of a, of a second story nightclub and trampled a bunch of folks. So that's how those 21 folks got killed. But in this scenario, um, yeah, you know, it was a little bit different. You know, we had a band, big publicity, uh, a bar slash club uh, that was admittedly overcrowded by uh, a small number. I mean, it, it, it held... I think 400 occupants and the, the numbers came out after there's 460 some in the, in the, in the building at the time. Go ahead and walk us through that and what happened at the station nightclub fire back in February of 03. So you're right. It happened a couple of days after Chicago and the part owner of the nightclub also worked for the local TV station and figures, Hey, this would be great because we're having a white snake concert coming up. Um, we can do a report on on all the safety that we take uh, on this. So we'll do a, a whole video and, and a news report on how you can manage a crowd and 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 keep everybody safe. So the irony there is uh, is a little sad. Um, the occupancy limit, I think, was about yeah, you're right. It was I think it was four four hundred four four hundred five whatever it was, yeah. but they had like four hundred and sixty yeah. in, in there at the time. Um, the foam in question there um, was was put there uh, 
and it was more for sound. So I guess some of the neighbors were complaining that, you know, it was allowed in there. And obviously when you're, when you're going to get foam, right. To, to drown out the sound, what, what are you going to do? Are you going to buy the expensive stuff or are you going to go with the cheap stuff? I mean, you, you know, you're like any business, right? You're in a business to make money. So you cut a corner here or there. Now, I, I don't know exactly why they picked that one, but the one that they did pick was flammable. And this foam yeah. was, this foam was put up uh, on the walls yes. where the, I think, the band was it just where, was it just where the drummer was? Cause the drummer was sitting back in kind of an alcove. It, it, it was in the alcove and on the sides of the alcove. It was so all it, around the, all around the band yeah. stage, if you will. Yeah. So this is, this is coverings on the wall. Right. Um, around where this, the band is playing. Right. Okay. Now, now, again, I, I'm only going to assume that some of these are assumptions on my part. Like, you know, if you're going out to buy this foam, right. And, and the, Flame retardant one is $10 a square as compared to $6 a square for the non-flammable. Well, why do I need the flammable? It's just for sound. Or, or did they need, yeah, or did they even think about that? I mean, it's, right, right. I don't think yeah. that, that's one of the thoughts, right? So yeah. you're like, well, why spend the extra money on something that I don't really need? Yeah. So so they, they, they put the stuff in there that wound up being flammable. Now, there's still a question over, the band said, the manager said, I had permission to use the pyrotechnics. The owners of the nightclub are saying, we don't know anything about it. There was nothing ever in writing. Yeah, there, was so, so there were no permits as typical with a local you know, pyro event. You have to have a permit to set off the pyros, whether it's outdoor fireworks or indoor, indoor fireworks. visual right. effects. Yeah. Right. So they, no, they no did not, none of that happened. None of that happened. Um, so, so obviously the owners are going to say, well, there was no permits pulled on it. We, we didn't pull any permits because nobody asked us to. Whereas the manager said, I didn't know I needed permits in this one. And I just put them up and I let the owners know. And they said, yeah, go ahead. So it's, you know, he said, she said on that one. Yeah. Um, but the pyrotechnics, so the, there were four gerbs and they were 15, so they last for 15 seconds and they shoot about 15 feet. And there were four total, two facing straight up and two at a 45 degree angle. And the ones at the 45 degree angle are the ones that caught the foam. So these um, gerbs, I mean, just to make sure we are, we're, everybody knows what, what a gerb is, these are kind of ground-based boxes that shoot uh, pyrotechnic effect, basically sparks out correct. 15 feet. Is yeah. it, and it, it looks like a fan pattern, if I'm not mistaken. It's kind of right. this, it's, a, it's a, an effect you see at big shows, obviously bigger than this one. but. Right. That's the effect. It's a small box on the floor that they set off with a, a trigger, shoot sparks across right. the, the wall. Now, I, I didn't know this part until way afterwards, but I guess the music video to the song that they were they open up with has fire in it. Oh. So I guess some of the people, I'm, I'm assuming that some of the people that were there that knew, obviously they were there to watch White Snake and probably saw the video, see the fireworks go off, see the pyrotechnics, see the flames and thinking, well, that's part of the song is the only thing I can imagine as to why some of them didn't get out or, or didn't say something's not right with this right away. Yeah. The first, and uh, I'll, I'll put the link to the YouTube video you sent me. I mean, this is this, this video that this news crew had shot is pretty widely available. And you sent me one that's recently been published. And it's a little bit longer one. But it's pretty interesting to watch the crowd and they're still rocking to the band yeah. as the flames are crawling up the wall and and all of a sudden the band kind of stops playing and one of the band members goes oh that's not good right in the video and that's when i think it was like oh now it's time to leave so a good five ten seconds maybe of the band still playing and the building's on fire right and, and i think not until that huge black smoke started to pour over the crowd is when people realized maybe that fire is really not part of the show. Yeah. So yeah, it, uh, you, you could see, but, but the person that videotaped kind of realized that pretty quickly, um, and started to back out pretty quick. Um, the, the, the alarms sounded within, I think 30 seconds. So the, everything functioned in the nightclub other than it being sprinkled the way it was supposed to. Um, and then the massive same thing, the massive stampede to get out, um, ensues. So I, I, I remember that um, when I was in New York at the time, so I taught a lot at our ATF Academy and um, 
Bobby McCormick was the uh, program manager for the arson and explosives section when we go through our uh, academy training and knew that I had gone through this early on in my career. And when I was teaching down there, he always enjoyed having me down because one of the things we tried to get out to the ATF agents is, you know, you, you're going to get the call one day and are you going to be ready for the call? And how are you going to handle that call? Um, unlike, you know, working a regular job, you know, we're, we're responding to stuff at a moment's notice and, and how ready are you going to be when you get that call? And it was a Thursday night, took the kids, uh, to a Broadway show. They wanted to go see uh, The Lion King and got home, was staying in the city, and I get the phone call three, four in the morning from the arson and explosive, explosive supervisor, who wasn't even my supervisor at the time, but he knew I had an interest in fire. Um, and so him and I had, had been friends and we knew each other and I kind of thought it was weird that he was calling me. Um, and I pick up and you could just tell by his tone of his voice, Hey, where are you? I'm in New York. How quickly can you get up here? I'm like, um, a couple hours. Why? I need you up here. We just had a huge fire down in Rhode Island, a lot of fatalities. And we're heading down there this morning. I said, all right, well, I got to wake the kids up, get them in the car, get home, switch out, get into my work truck and head down there. Um, so that's that whole preparedness. Like, you know, the, now I'm driving from New York up to Massachusetts. And I'm thinking for the whole three hours, like, all right, do I have everything in the truck that I need? What am I going to need? You know, what's going on? Can, can I start look, listening to news reports? You know, this was pre having Google on your phone. Um, yeah, we had Nextels, but what, what can I find out about this fire in the next couple of hours before I need to get down there? Um, do I have everything I need? And getting the kids home, switching out the cars, getting down there and going and all right, what, what do we need to do? I mean, you show up there and it's just this massive scene with a building three quarters down. And, you know, then you hear, oh, we have 200 people on their way to the hospital. We got uh, 100 people that are deceased. Um, some of them are st still stuck in the doorway, so to speak, um, and trying to get those bodies out and, and coordinating. So you get down there with all this adrenaline rush and you realize that was my first experience with okay, we're not just going to rush this. Yes, we're going to do this and we're going to do this today, but let's sit down and go over how we're going to do this. And Chris Pareka uh, was a, is a retired uh, national response team team leader and watching him operate at this scene was just, it was amazing to see, all right, the calmness. Okay, here's what we got. Here's what we need to do. And, and, and he brought calmness to even the local investigators. Because again, you know, a, a city of Warwick is going to get overwhelmed when you have 300 people that are between injuries and fatalities. To have somebody with the calmness of going, okay, this is what we need to do. And this is how we're going to handle it. Um, what, what was it about his, um, his, his skills? Was it the, the way he delivered information? You know, I, 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 you know part of my career uh, was being on a helicopter and I, I always tried to get the first thing I tried to do when I got to the scene is talk quieter and yes quiet it seemed everybody was yelling and screaming and you, you kind of talk in a whispered voice and it brings everybody down is that yeah. was that part of it that's Chris and, and I and I, I think sometimes that's why I, I never got to that kind of a role um, I'm a loud New Yorker so you know there's no such thing as a quiet conversation and I have another strike against me I'm Italian so we talk with our hands and, and we're very loud so there, there's plenty of times where people think like, you know, why are you yelling at your daughters? I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just talking to them. It's just that's the way we do things. And, you know, family get togethers, you would think that the family's fighting. But meanwhile, we're just showing how much we love each other. Yeah, um, speaking so, so, in that, speaking that Italian New York tone or voice. It's, oh, uh, yeah. That, not, that, a, not a quiet thing. That, yeah. That's not what you want when you're looking for calmness. Right. Um, but Chris just had that calm demeanor. And, and like even for, for me, I just got there and going. I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm full of adrenaline. Let's go. Let's go. And Chris is like, all right, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And, and just that calmness and the confidence. So th that I think helps ease a lot and, and helps that transition of, 
hey, we're not here to take anything over. We're here to help. What can we do? Here's what I suggest we do. Here's how I think we should be doing this scene. Here's where I think you know, the, the big thing is, and I learned this early in my career, is anticipating like where this is going to go. So, so Chris already knew, like, all right, we have video. We, we know kind of what happened, but how are we going to prevent this? How, how can we figure out what happened, how quickly it happened? How can we model this? How can we see if changing things around, what could we change in this? Like this is even before the investigation starts. It is things that are going through his head to kind of figure out where do we go? Kind of already thinking about what lessons can we learn out of this? Right, right. And and I took that into my career as a fire investigator going, okay, I have a fire here. Where is this going to go? And what are some of the questions that are going to be asked of me later on as I'm documenting the scene? So as I'm arriving at my conclusion, okay, well, what about this? Well, how, what, what is somebody going to say about this? And, and did I eliminate this? And how am I going to explain that I eliminated this? How do, how do I ultimately arrive to my conclusion and defend it properly, whether through photographs, whether through video, whether through schematics? How am I going to be able to show and prove beyond a reasonable doubt whether it's accidental and undetermined? Or an incendiary. Sometimes you you know you have to explain that undetermined as much as you have to explain an incendiary, because sometimes you might know what started the fire, but you can't put all three of those components together to say this is what happened. Or there are two scenarios that are very similar that it could be this or it could be that. As, as much as anything, it's it's you're proving what didn't start it. it as much as you're proving what did. Right. Um, and, and I think that's. When you go into that mentality, I think that's where you become a better investigator right off the bat, realizing that the scientific method isn't to just arrive at your conclusion, but the way that you arrive at your conclusion is to prove what didn't happen. Right. Let's go back to the video. Um, you say you got a call, you know, this, this incident happened late in the evening on a Thursday, the 20th of February. You get the call in New York about 3 a.m. At what point did you guys actually get your hands on that video from that news crew to, to, to kind of go, did, and did that really narrow what you were looking at from an investigative standpoint? Oh, absolutely. And that, that again, so when we started working that scene, that's the kind of the, the breakup of it. So I, here it is, I'm working the, the, the scene itself. So we're going to start looking at where are we going to start digging out? Where are we going to start looking through as we're also doing removal of bodies, the supervisor comes up and says, all right, time to take a break. We have this video here. We want everybody to come in and kind of watch, see what we have. So the video came in pretty early on. Um, and it, it, we got to sit and watch it and go, okay, we know where it's at. So yes, we're going to obviously document the scene but we know what area we're going to focus on. So let's try and make sure that we don't disturb that area or that area is going to be dug out like a fine-tooth comb. We're not going to be going in with big rakes and shovels. It's going to be hand tools. It's going to be a lot of sifting because we're going to look to recover as much evidence in that area as possible. Um, how, how much of a, yeah, yeah, you kind of, you kind of eliminate basically everything else in that building that didn't have a, anything to do with the point of origin or area of origin you know, maybe using heavy equipment to pull down walls, get access to it. How, how, how much time do you think did that video save you? Cause I, I've, I've worked with uh, ATF dogs before and they saved us days of digging because we're going to, do we start the digging that sifting and that detailed process out here at the fringes or right. can we use heavy equipment till we get within X number of feet? And now we're going to go into that kind of fine tooth comb. Yeah. Th that definitely does help. But again, you, you know, you don't want to get into that mindset where just because the video shows that is there something else that was going on somewhere else that contributed to it. Mm -hmm. This was kind of a clear cut because you had the, the, the pyrotechnics igniting that. But but you also don't want to rule out anything else or you don't want to have that preconceived notion that just because you have that video, that's what you, the only thing you looked at. So, yeah, heavy equipment probably saved a couple of days, but we're still going to go through areas going, okay, what's in this area and what could potentially start a fire in this area? And, and is there any indications within that, that we have a fire originating in that? Or we also look at it as did something secondarily happen here 
because of what happened at the stage and, and caused the fire to spread that much more quickly? Was there something in the lighting system or the electrical system up there that helped that fire progress quicker? Um, so, so even though you're, you're eliminating that, you're, you're kind of doing it a little quicker, but you're still looking in that area because not only do you want to prove, yes, the pyrotechnics started the fire, but, but here's what caused it to spread at the rate it did, that it did. And if you don't take the time to look at what was there, how do you prove that a fixture or a, another electrical component or whatever it may be helped spread that fire? Was there extra fireworks stored somewhere else that then caught? And now all of a sudden you have the main blaze going, but you have a secondary fire going on here that spread that fire quicker. And with this case, you know, it was, it was clear that the, the egress capacity or the egressibility of the patrons probably had a, uh, an impact on the number of fatalities and injuries. Did you find anything within what you were just talking about, you know, building contents or other fireworks that kind of contributed to that? Or was that, did you walk through that process and go, yeah, we didn't find anything. It's still just the. It, it was pretty much that, that, that really was what it was. Um, and the fire spread quickly through that ceiling um, and at that above area and banked down pretty quickly. And the toxicity of that smoke that was coming out of there could have killed somebody, you know, within seconds. Well, let's talk about the, the egress because the, you know, thankfully the video crew got out, like you said, and, and actually right. went up having some video from that front door. Um, you know, what, were, what were the challenges of get, just get people getting out of that uh, club at the time? So, so we're, you go back to being creatures of habit, right? So if you come into a nightclub and you go in one way, that's pretty much the way you're going to go out. And even though you may see an exit sign somewhere else, you're not really, in your mind, you're really not sure if that's exactly the exit. And you, but you know for sure, when you're in a moment of panic and it's fight or flight, I know I got in that way. I know I can get out that way. I don't know if going through that door leads to a second door or am I going to be trapped somewhere in there? So in our minds, we go through the process of this is the way I came in and this is the way I'm going to go out. Um, so that's the reason I think that stampede really happens getting out that way. And again, the doors are wide enough for normal people. Like, you know what? If the concert just ends and everybody wants to get out, we know how it is, right? Everybody slowly gets out. And we're fine. But when you try and push that stampede through is when you get that bottleneck. And when that heat starts banking down at the back of your neck, panic sets in. Um, and you can see from the video that I even sent you is you had people piled up on that doorway trying to get out. It was at some point, you know, the first two people fall, two people fall on top of them. And next thing you know, you got a pile of eight people high that nobody can now get out unless you try and, and people are trying to climb over those people. So some people at that bottom of it didn't die from smoke or fire. They died just because they were crushed from just the impact of people on top of them. So this is it, it, now we got fire fatalities and fatalities similar to what happened in Chicago just a couple of weeks before. Correct. Yeah. Well, did and there was at least one other exit in the building. What, um, Tell me a little bit about that one. I think the band or most of the band got out that way, but there was something else going on with that back door as well, wasn't it? So, so there was a security guard posted at that door. Um, and of course, that was security guards being told, hey, that's the band entrance and exit. So the band use only. So in those initial seconds of panic, it was security's job to get the band out that way. So he does his job, but but then prevents... I'm not sure if he prevented, but other people didn't get out that way. And I think it's a combination of, you know, not knowing exactly what you have just yet, right? I don't know if this is really going to turn into something bad. So this is the guys start heading out that way. That's where everybody's going to go. And that's a double door. So at least more people can get out that way as compared to the single door that's behind me, the security guard. Uh, they start going that way. And again, creatures of habit, right? Most of the people, by the time they realize I may not get out that way. It's too late to turn around and use that other exit. That exit becomes almost blocked, so to speak, by that fire because that's closest to where the fire starts. Yeah. So as that fire gets closer to that doorway, that doorway or that exit becomes useless at that point. 
Um, there's an exit through the kitchen, but, but who knows that? I mean, you know, I'm not sitting there going, okay, I need to get out of here. Let me try and go through the kitchen and get out. So everybody was using that one entrance. They came in, right? A few people may have noticed the back entrance, but the security guard said, Nope, you got to go out the front. Probably not knowing how bad the incident was to kill off. And Correct. really nobody may have known about this, the kitchen exit, except maybe the staff. Right. And, and it's like anything else, right? It's easy to play that Monday morning quarterback going, well, you know, if, if the security guard let the people out in that first moment, when there's not panic, that that's not the first thing on your mind. And that's what it's, you know, as much as we say that we can prevent these things from happening again, you can't prevent human error. You, you can't take away that human element that for all the precautionary measures we may take, that we as humans can't mess that up. Or, or throw in the panic phase. Okay, of right. When you yeah. throw panic in, we mess that up. Well, what other, uh, you know, we'll, I'll chat just a second in a minute about um, some of the codes and standards and things that came out of this. But uh, what, what lessons learned did you have from, from working this as a, as a major incident? Obviously, a lot of media presence, um, you know, very high profile incident. Yeah, and how long were you guys working the scene at at the station nightclub? What what kind of lessons learned did you take away from that? The, so that was my really first exposure to a major incident where there's that much media around, and obviously, um, you know, you know, this the solemn attitude that really was there. I mean, you know, you did have a major tragedy just happen, so you you always have to be aware of that even when you're working the scene because it's very easy for me and you to be working together. We just dug this out. We're coming out to take a break. Now we start laughing and kidding and joking around. Well, guess what? The cameras are watching you. And somebody whose son, daughter may have passed away sees you out there laughing and joking. Now, it's not a thing against the fatalities that just happened, but sometimes that's our coping mechanism uh, is to laugh and joke about things. But, but people don't understand that when you're under the eye. And that was my first exposure to it. Um, and it, it, it made you realize that, you know, as much as we're here and we're doing a job and this is a job we love to do, you know, there's the, the good and the bad. Like I was, I was excited when I first got that phone call going, all right, I'm going to be responding to a major scene. But then when you realize when you respond to that major scene, there's tragedy involved in it. Um, yes, it's our job, but, but it's, it's that solemn, oh man, I'm going to this again. And, Throughout my career, I wind up working four or five fatal firefighter scenes. And, and those are the worst because, you know, you're responding to it. And after the second or third time, you're just like, this isn't fun anymore. I mean, I have a job to do, but geez, how many more times do I have to go to these? Um, and you realize that, you know what, it, this, is, this is what you signed up for. So, yes, it's your career. Um, and, and, and you take comfort in the fact that, you know what, uh, I got to the point the first firefighter fatality that I worked took a toll on me in the sense that I didn't want to leave that scene because it was going to wind up being an under, we had a building collapse. It's going to be an undetermined fire. And I felt horrible about the fact that I wasn't going to be able to give the family some answers. Um, and I took that really, really hard. Um, by the time I worked my second and third and you kind of work through, okay, here's what happened. And, and I know and I, the way I took the scene is, not only do I want to prove what happened in that fire, but then I also want to use some of the resources we have within ATF, whether it's fire protection engineers, electrical engineers, to explain to the family, here's what happened to your loved one. No fault of his own, but here's the circumstances that got him to where he was. Um, and they take comfort in that. And, and that gave me some comfort knowing Something came out of the tragedy, whether it's new firefighting tactics or, hey, fire department, this is what happened. And, and these are some of the things that you need to be on the lookout for. Like you need to take these things into account. We're, science, fire is a science that is ever evolving. And firefighter tactics are going to change all the time as we learn what makes fire do what it does. And I took comfort a little bit in the fact that I was able to give number one family some answers as to what happened. And I was able to at least help the fire department realize, hey, this is some of the things that we need to be looking out for as we go into these fires. 
So is it the, the investigation piece of it is as much a prevention yeah. um, task as anything else. It's, and I learned that pretty quickly from Chris on, on this fire. This was before I was even a CFI. This was before I even got into the fire investigations is, okay, let's look at the grand picture here. Um, and I kind of followed along afterwards with when we did take this stuff, Chris, Chris at that time reaching out to NIST and saying, hey, what can we do? Dan Majikowski taking a huge role and going, all right, let's let's model this as well. And let's see what, let's make the model better. So let's let's, we know what happened. And here's what the model says, but here's what we also know that we can put into the model to help it become even better. Um, so you start to learn that that data in is what data comes out, garbage in, garbage out. So now all of a sudden, if we're able to take much more information, so that's what I mean by let's make sure, even though knowing the video is going to save us some time, if we're going to model this, we want to make sure we have everything. So we're not just going to rumble through going, we're going to eliminate this real quick. So let's get through it. Let's make sure we got everything in here so that when we model this completely, I can give all that data that we need to now help that model become even better. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say this is we as a as a code nerd and and working with public education and in, in my job after this, uh, we use that video at least the short version of that video a number of times locally talking to people about preparedness and knowing your exits and knowing your yeah. way out. And just because the band security guard says you can't go this way you need to go that way because you don't want to go back through the hazard area kind of thing. So and it, I did, I did the same thing even with my kid. Like, you know, every time we go to a hotel, my kids would call me the nerd for doing that stuff. I'm like, <laughs> Hey girls, if something were to happen during the night, That's I want you to out. see where the exits are. So remember if we get, we're all going to go together, but when we get out of here, we're going to make a left turn as we come out. Cause it's going to be, it might be dark in here and we're going to head towards this exit. Like, yes, dad. Yes. Be prepared. Yeah. Well, what some of the other things that came out of this uh, again to kind of wrap up the fire investigation piece? Um, obviously, the the fireworks, the gerbs caught the um, the the foam, poly, the urethane and polyurethane foam that was on the wall on fire, and that quickly spread across the bar, uh, killing a hundred people. Uh, anything else from the the investigation standpoint that came out that um, you know contributed to or was a, a causing factor of this? the age of the building, the fact that they didn't make the code improvements that needed to be made when you transitioned it to a nightclub. Um, and again, it, it, it's an open, it's an unsprinkled building with huge open spaces. So you know that when you have a huge, large open space, older building, that fire is going to progress pretty quickly. And especially when you have a flammable type foam and not only did the fire spread quickly, but that thick layer of smoke really banked down pretty quickly. Was that, uh, was, that the, was that the, was that the, because of the foam and the nature of the, the fuel package? The nature of the fuel package is really what, what spread that across quickly. And you can see that as the cameraman is backing out, you can see that thick black layer already starting to foam and come form and come down on, on uh, patrons. Right. Well, in the aftermath, I know we worked in Virginia uh, to get nightclubs, uh, and that's that's always kind of an interesting debate about what 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 qualifies a, a facility as a nightclub that reduced the sprinkler threshold to a hundred patrons. Uh, we're st you're still battling that across the country. A lot of the model codes brought that threshold down to a hundred, so that if this building were built tomorrow or after this code, they would have had sprinklers. And right. I think there's some, you mentioned NIST and Dan Madrakowski, another brilliant guy that I've gotten to talk to in the past. They, they modeled this and actually recreated the fire with sprinklers. Yes. Joe showed the impact of what would happen uh, in a sprinkler facility like this. And just the, the, the difference is li quite literally day and night. Yeah, uh, about absolutely. What would happen. So, um, so we're still battling the code challenges um you know some some places say to be a nightclub you have to have music uh dancing and alcohol and i i want to say i've been in a couple of clubs that they prohibited dancing therefore they're not nightclubs therefore they can have 300 people and not be sprinklered so uh the some of the some of the folks from a business perspective they're trying to save a nickel and uh, that's what they're doing and um i don't fault them for that but 
uh, in the big scheme of things, they're actually putting people in danger because their their buildings are substandard. Is the way I've always called it. So. And, and and you know what? So so that's going to always be the, the we're always going to be dealing with tragedies because when when, you, when you're talking about money being a profiteering thing, right? You, you're always going to have incidents where somebody's going to take a shortcut to save money, but not realizing that saving that money could potentially put people in harm's way. So I think, I think you just answered this next question, uh, but I'll ask it to you, you know, with your history and experience with this fire, do you think we're going to have another nightclub related fire? We've had you know, Coconut Grove, the Rhythm Nightclub, um, and Station. Those are kind of three big ones that have happened over the last maybe 100 years or so. Do you think we're going to see another one of those types, types of incidents in the U.S., particularly anytime in the future? I think at some point, unfortunately, we will. I mean, because the bottom line is this. We can take all the precautionary measures, right? But when you put human intervention into the mix, there's always going to be something that happens. And there's always going to be a code that was done, but there was a loophole within that code that found that caused this to happen. So you, and you're always going to get you, you can't have a fire marshal at every single event every single time. Right. So, you, you know, it says 300. All right, so you had 320 or 330 in there. Nobody's going to really come in and count. So, hey, we can make an extra couple hundred bucks, an extra thousand dollars by letting those 30 people in. You're, you're always going to have that when human intervention gets involved. So unfortunately, maybe, and we'll never know really the, the we can make all these co-changes and we'll re never really know the full effect of it because we'll have another event where 100 die, God forbid, but it could have been 400 if we didn't take 30 measures that we did over the next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, to kind of wrap this up, um, you know, the, the, the court cases were ongoing for many years. And I think uh, if I got the, if the Wikipedia or, or uh, the news articles I read are right, the band manager actually pled guilty to a hundred counts of manslaughter and was sentenced to 15 years uh, with 11 years suspended. And the club owners uh, pled no contest, and one of them got 15 years, and the other got 500 hours of community service. So, so uh, from a civil perspective, those those uh, entities did have to to pay the price, so to speak. How much were, were were you or the ATF involved in those those criminal proceedings after the fact and in in the courts? Um, we weren't involved that much in that. We we assisted in it, but. We didn't take the lead role in that. Um, we, we left that to the locals. I mean, that, and, and that's the right thing to do sometimes is that, you know what? This is your community. This is, this is yours. We don't need to come. You can do exactly what we, we can give you the information. You can, you can do your job um, just as well as we can do it. Um, and, and it gave them some satisfaction being able to, to present the case. Well, John, I appreciate that. And any, uh, to just kind of wrap it up, I'll give you kind of the last word. And uh, one of the things I typically ask folks who've been in the business in one, some way, shape, or form for as many years as you have is what what piece of advice, particularly for investigators, um, because that was kind of pr primarily the, the history you had, is what would you tell a new investigator coming into the investigations world now? Sometimes it's it's police officers making the, the great leap to the fireside, and sometimes it's firefighters making the move to, to fire marshal's offices to be investigators. What kind of a piece of advice would you give them uh, with your years of experience to help them with their career? The, the one thing that I learned more than anything else is you, you really need to be open-minded and look for other people to challenge you. I, I always enjoyed going to a fire scene and having two other or three other people there with me. So if I was the lead, I would always look for you to challenge me. Like, Hey, this is where I think I'm, this is where I'd like to head. I want you to help me figure out why we're not looking at the CD corner and why I'm looking at the AB corner. I want you to challenge me. And sometimes we feel like, what are you trying to do? Out, out show me or something? You, you think you're smarter than I am? You think you're better than me? We need to draw, there's a lot of times where we need to drop that in fire investigations and say, open my eyes to something. I, I'm not able to see everything. And I, I want your opinion and I want you to challenge me. And, and if you think you're right, don't don't back down from it. And let's make this a healthy, productive discussion so that if I do change my mind, I can 
you've given me the tools to do so. And if not, I know a defense attorney is going to pick that up. And I want to be able to get all those answers because I know you know more than that attorney does. They're not fire investigators. They're, they may know the law, but, but I want to be able to get into your mind as to why you really thought it was there because those questions are going to be asked of me. So it's a fair statement to say it's an, it's an easier debate or, or maybe call it a more fun debate at the fire scene with your colleague going, hey, why aren't you looking over here at this? rather than a defense attorney when you're on the stand going, why did you not look at this? Right. And, and I think that's kind of the lesson that I learned the hard way um, is the only way you, and you also have to be open to being taken criticism well. Um, I remember the first time I testified, I worked the case with Andy Cox, who is a special agent with ATF. He's a certified fire investigator up in New Hampshire. He was also a, he's also a fire protection engineer with ATF before he became an agent. He, he's, he's brilliant. He's smart. He's, he's great at fire investigation. Um, and I worked the case with him. So I, I concurred with him. I was his peer reviewer on, on a case or technical reviewer now we call. And when we had a civil deposition, a criminal, criminal deposition up in New Hampshire, something I've never done as police or fire where they do depositions on a criminal side. And I just remember getting my ass handed to me to the point where I'd lunch break. They're like, Hey, we're going to go out to lunch. I'm like, no, I, I need to go open up my computer and put in my res resignation letter into ATF because <laughs> I'm just doing a horrible job. Um, but you realize that's what makes you better. So you, you only succeed or you only become a better fire investigator when you fail sometimes. Um, because you have to learn from your mistakes and, and you, you know what, I'll never do that again. Then you do another case and you, you, you covered two different items, but not the third. Oh, I'll never do that again when you get your ass handed to you. Um, so hopefully by, by the end of your career, you're at the point where you're comfortable getting on the stand and being able to defend with some good certainty, even though you get your ass handed to you a little bit, it's not as bad. As it was the first time 10 years right. before that. So I'll summarize that and say it, uh, don't take anything personal and set your ego aside. I, I think that's the big thing. And I think sometimes early on in your career, you forget that um, and you take things personal and you, you don't put your ego aside because you're the, you, uh, is the old guy trying to show me something or trying to show me that I really don't know anything. I'll show him that I really do. Yeah. Well, I'll throw out one last piece of advice um, from my experience and kind of follows up on some of the conversation we had is, uh, for any local fire investigators out there, reach out to the local ATF guys, uh, make those connections, make those relationships uh, before the fire starts and find out what they've got to bring to the table uh, because they certainly have a lot of tools and uh, resources that you can use on some of those fires. And one in my old jurisdiction, just not too long ago, I was talking to, to the captain down there and uh, because of that relationship with the ATF, they were able to come in and do some things that helped get to the actual cause of the fire. It was a very tragic fire, killed a, a couple of kids and, uh, and I'll tell you this, you're, you're absolutely right on that. And, and those are the bonds that form that I, I will say as an ATF agent and as having done police and fire postward, um, I have more friends in the fire service because of the relationships that I built traveling across the country um, because guys may not have worked with ATF before. And now we're there, uh, Oakland. I got three guys in Oakland Fire Department that I still keep in touch with because we did a national response call out. And for the week that we were there, we probably went out three or four times during at night and we formed friendships. Um, and, and I've gotten friends as far as um, Alaska. And I remember coming, going on a cruise and getting off the boat and we're in Ketchikan. And I'm like, hey, you know what? I did a fire one time and I taught one of the guys. I think I'm going to stop by the station up here. Went up there and next thing you know, I'm leaving there with shirts, hats, got a tour of it. Hey, what can we do for you next time you come up here? Make sure you tell us beforehand. Those bonds are formed um, while we're out there doing good work together. True that. So you were in Oakland. Were you at, uh, was it the ghost ship? Was that the? There was, no, this one was a $10 million senior citizen home that was under construction. Oh. Well, maybe we'll get together and talk about that one one day. Or, or Boston Marathon bombing. Or the bombing, yeah. Well, let's do that. Let's plan on that. Uh, John Pajaka, Special Agent with ATF and CFI, um, thanks again for your time. 
I appreciate you, you one, your service. Uh, you're helping out with the investigations community and, and sharing your thoughts here today. I certainly do appreciate you being with me and thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for your time. And thanks again to John Pajaka for uh, helping me out with this podcast and telling the story of the station nightclub fire, as well as talking about the ATF. Uh, always some pretty interesting stuff that the federal agencies are doing to support locals. And just as a reminder, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can go to patreon.com backslash firehouse logbook podcast and subscribe. You can get some behind the scenes videos and additional content that's going on around this podcast. I appreciate the support. Again, patreon.com backslash firehouse logbook podcast. And you can always shoot me a note at firehouse logbook at gmail.com or follow along on Twitter at FD logbook is the handle there. Instagram is at FD logbook podcast and always post updates on the Facebook page. So you can search at FD logbook on Facebook and make sure you like and follow that page as well. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.